today's read, Midnight, and the Meaning of Love by a Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story. Today's chapter is actually the last chapter in the Japan story, the Japan portion of this book. This chapter will get into the area where married couples, happily married couples, go. They get intimate with each other. I will not go into the specific graphic details, but the experienced listener will be able to read between the lines. Chapter 14, Akimi. Although we ticketed and boarded the flight from Asahikawa Airport in Hokkaido separately, we were all seated in the same coach section, in the same row. Our flight to Osaka International Airport was full. I figured maybe we had gotten these last minute three open seats because of some cancellation by some other passengers. I was grateful. Both Chiasa and I had aisle seats. Akimi sat beside me in the middle seat to my right. Of course, I felt the impulse to introduce the two of them, but there were some strong points keeping me still. First, Chiasa had made it clear that she wanted to remain invisible. Thinking now, ninja to ninja, I decided and understood that this was her strategic position. She wanted to burn her involvement with this mission just in case anything went wrong in the remaining hours or days. It was sharp of her and I understood. So I stopped considering whether she had personal reasons for wanting us to appear anonymous to one another. With the network of thoughts about what had already taken place so far, what was happening now, and the plans for my and Akimi's future, there was no more space left for me to decipher or confirm or pinpoint anything else. I also thought that introducing two women, my wife and the woman who made it possible for me to find my wife, on a plane surrounded by strangers would be an unnecessary security problem. Their talking to one another might reveal too much. Who knows who's listening? Besides, both of them would be speaking Japanese across and over me in a plane packed with primarily Japanese people. Only I would be left out of the language loop. Of course I chose the way that would lead to the well-being of my wife. Chiasa was a superb ninja. She did not make eye contact with me even once since she'd hopped in her taxi driving behind Jasna, Akimi, and me, or when she adjusted her airline ticket as we stood in the same line. Even during our flight, she turned her body leftward and laid her face away from me. She slept through the entire flight, or at least she appeared to be sleeping as I observed her breathing by the subtle and slow 
rise and fall of her breast. She must be exhausted, I thought to myself. The night before, she had sacrificed her sleep to allow me to get mine. Akimi was warm. She took my right hand and studied the lines that Allah had drawn in my palm. I didn't know what she might be thinking. I did know that after one good look, she might make a great drawing of just the inside of my hand, done so well that the viewer would feel that she knew my entire life story through Akimi's passionate pencil strokes. She was like this, my wife. After looking closely, she began caressing my hand, moving her fingers lightly from my fingertips into my palms and up the insides of my wrists. She was feeling each of my veins with her fingertips, slowly and lightly. She is and was a continuous arousal to me. When she released my hand, she placed her hand onto the side of my face, stroking my skin. Then she slid one of her pretty slim fingers to the inside of my ear. She was touching so lightly that it sent a strong sensation through my body. She swirled her finger out and down onto my jaw. Slowly, she began tracing my jawline. She paused. One finger in the corner of my mouth, she traced the outline of my lips. I turned toward her and smiled. What are you trying to do in here? I asked her in English. She withdrew her hand and smiled also. Her eyes flooded with feelings. She wrapped both of her hands around my arm and pressed her face against my body and steadied there. I knew I had to lead her and not the other way around. I had a real task to clearly explain Ramadan to her all and the specific beliefs and ways of my life, our new lives, without common words or familiar tongues. I had to be careful with a wife so warm and sweet and lodged, so strong up in my heart, that instead of focusing on my faith, I found my mind wandering and wanting to pull her up into my lap facing me, of course. I knew the difference between faith and fantasy. After an intense morning that wasn't truly over yet, the fantasy was very appealing. My sensual thoughts turned to loving thoughts. My loving thoughts turned to protective thoughts. I didn't know which details Akimi knew and didn't know, but I figured it had to be stressful for Akimi to be the daughter of Ju Yun Lee, who had been kidnapped, and then to be kidnapped herself by the same person, her father, or at least the man she obviously still believed was her father. My mind began juggling images of all the incredible material things that Akimi's father had provided her and her mother with and all the luxury and opportunities. Did he think his estate and his mountain and the clothes and the travels and the elite status that they enjoyed made it okay? Cancel out that he had kidnapped a 15-year-young girl, called her 
overseas from her country by force and married her? Did he believe that it was justifiable to drug my wife and fly her 7,000 miles away from me? Could he reason to himself that killing my twins or even allowing them to live but hiding them away from their father for a lifetime was right? I was struggling in my narrow airline seat, my thoughts and mind and body in a battle. I had gone against my own ways and beliefs. I had killed lesser men for lesser violations than the ones Nakamura had committed. I had allowed Chiasa to shoot Makoto. Tranquilizing him was the same as leaving him half dead, which is something I don't do or haven't done in my young life. If I make the decision that a man, because of his evil actions or his evil threat, has to go, I don't give that man a chance at a get-back. He doesn't deserve one. Was it okay for Nakamura to be left alone and alive? Would he regroup and try to strike again? Of course he would. He was the man who never surrenders. Let him come, I thought to myself. What makes a man powerful? I thought further. His God, his land, his culture, his language, his business, his ability to protect and defend, I answered back. Then I experienced another first, seated beside my wife, whom I had experienced a bunch of meaningful firsts with. For the first time since Uma and I had landed in the United States of America, my mind shifted from my responsibility and strategy of protecting Uma while we were living there and building a business with her while we were living there and buying a house for her while we were there to a consideration to take Uma and my wife and sister and to return to the Sudan no matter how complicated that might become. If I had learned one lesson from traveling to Japan, it was that if a man could survive and build on his own land, surrounded by his own like-minded people, speaking his own language, following his own beliefs, he could control the outcome of his circumstances much better. I had seen that Americans didn't believe what I believed. Japanese didn't believe what I believed. And the environment that they had created made it impossible for a man to secure his wife and raise his children properly. There was no consensus among the men of America or the men of Japan about how to live properly, how to relate to their women, how to raise their sons and secure their daughters. How could there be a belief when the women in America and in Japan were nearly naked out of doors daily? To truly love and protect a woman in these surroundings would be to have to fight constantly. A man would spend most of his seconds and minutes and hours fighting. The only alternative would be to not love the women 
If a man did not love women, he wouldn't have any concern over them. He wouldn't protect them. He wouldn't marry them. He would only ignore or use and abuse them. Love makes a man protect his women. Anything else is not love. I was certain of this. It is not as though I had not witnessed these truths through my own father. I had witnessed them as a child daily. I had even thought about them. I had remembered and cherished the memories also. Now I was seeing these truths as a man. Now I was deciding. If I had to constantly fight, no matter where I lived and stood, why not fight in the land of my father for the land of my father and the faith and beliefs of my father? At least there, the way of life was worth guarding, maintaining, and enjoying. There was a basic agreement between men over the simple things like the definition of man, the definition of woman, the sacredness of family, what should be done in our homes versus what shouldn't be done in our homes, and so on. Spilling blood or having my own blood spilled was easy for me to accept if it had a deeper meaning and a meaningful purpose and outcome. In fact, only now, after all of this, did I realize that more than land and money and power, men around the globe were fighting over the meaning of life, the meaning of love, and the way we each should be living from day to day. The money and the power was just a method to control the meaning. Could that be true? I asked myself. In a flow of passengers moving at a careful pace toward the luggage carousel, Chiasa walked in front of us. In one sudden movement, she stopped, breaking the rhythm of the crowd and searched the floor for four rocks that had somehow spilled from her pockets. Naturally, I bent to help her pick them up. Quickly, she grabbed two and so did I. Inside of the two seconds that we were both bent to the floor, she whispered, Check three o'clock. It's Mayu from the Nakamura estate. As I stood up looking at the three o'clock direction, Akimi was already seeing Mayu and waving her way. I pulled Akimi back and held her hand as Chiasa eased onward. Turning her focus toward me, Akimi said, Jasna, there weren't enough seconds available for me to think fast or switch plans or even to measure the threat. I was clear that my spot had been blown up now that Mayu saw me walking with Akimi as we exited the flight from Hokkaido and approached the luggage carousel. Mayu was standing among others in clear view on the opposite side of the divide. I recall that Chiasa had described Mayu as the manager of the Nakamura estate who was secretly on Akimi's side. I held Akimi with me until my backpack rolled around. I picked it up and we walked together through the luggage area and exited directly where Mayu was st- standing waiting. Both Akimi and Mayu went into a series of bows. Then Akimi turned herself on an angle toward both Mayu and me and introduced me. 
I could only catch and understand a few of the Japanese words my wife used, but her tone and gestures held great affection, and she went on as though she were presenting my yield to a royal emissary or an important diplomat and not the hated nemesis of her father, Mayu's long-time and current employer. Mayu bowed to me politely, using only her head and not bending to the degrees that I had seen many Japanese people bow. Konnichiwa, hajime mashite, boku wa mayonaka desu. I spoke the standard Japanese self-introduction. In a way that revealed so much about their culture, the woman, Mayu, barely looked at me. She didn't smile or frown or display any emotion. She placed all her attention on Akimi and stepped to the side and rested one hand on the Louis Vuitton luggage stacked in size order on a cart beside her. Mayu spoke some more to Akimi, softly and calmly. As my eyes scanned the pile of red epi leather luggage, a trunk, a suitcase, and a soft cruiser sack all matching, I took a deep breath. Either this conservative, crispy, clean, and quality, well-dressed woman was a two-faced, clever aide to Nakamura who wanted to saddle me with expensive and heavy red luggage that made me stand out and slow down so that I could be identified and caught, or she was just concerned, a concerned, stand-in mother to Akimi, who overdid it as mothers do when their love and concern are pushed to an extreme. Further, I guess, that she must think that Akimi was on her way to America. Why else would she pack so many items when Korea was a short jump across the sea? She must have also believed that Akimi would not return anytime soon. Akimi watched me from the corners of her pretty eyes while showing respect toward Mayu at the same time. I could hear Mayu using familiar Japanese names, vocabulary words and phrases which I had memorized and learned by now, such as Nihon, which means Japan, Otosan, which means father, Ai, which means love, Beikoku, which means America, Kyotsukite, which means be careful. Then Mayu paused her speech for some seconds and asked Akimi in Japanese with a blank face but steady stare, Are you sure? Hi, Akimi responded. It was the eighth hi I had counted in their conversation filled, I imagined, with instructions, questions, and concerns. Mayu bowed a deep bow to Akimi and turned and left. Akimi watched me. As I watched Mayu walking away, I was looking to see if Mayu joined anyone else. Was she at the airport alone for the sake of helping Akimi to leave the country undetected? Exactly who had unloaded and carried the heavy luggage for her? Was it one of Nakamura's men or just a sky cap or airport worker or taxi driver whom she had randomly selected? As she disappeared from my view, walking solemnly in small steps, wearing an expensive skirt suit and sturdy, quality, elderly lady pumps, I thought to myself, either she is doing a job, a good job of acting, or she is actually all alone. What had she been told 
about Akimi's travel and future plans, I wondered. I figured Jasna had called ahead to Mayu, thinking with her heart and not her brain, and had had Mayu prepare Akimi's clothing and essentials. As my wife's best friend, Jasna, I'm sure, felt that she knew exactly what Akimi needed and wanted and was accustomed to having. Earlier, in Hokkaido, Jasna had lent Akimi her olive green Adidas sweatpants and a tiny olive green jacket to wear. Akimi had had no luggage or change of clothes since she had no idea that she was going to be sent up there to Hokkaido from her doctor's visit. It was too much of a rush for me to judge or complain about the borrowed outfit. It was better than traveling with a dark-haired beauty dressed in a mini made up only of flowers. Thinking further, although Jasna had caused Mayu to become the only person from the Nakamura estate to have actually seen me other than Nakamura's man Makoto, who lay tranquilized still in the tall Hokkaido grass that shielded him, I told myself not to harden my heart in judgment against Jasna. She, after all, had agreed to give up her own passport to Akimi, knowing full well that not having her documents in hand while living as a Nepali foreigner in Japan placed herself at legal risk. Jasna had even agreed in the event that Akimi didn't have her own passport to shave her best friend's head of her long flowing soft black locks and transform her into a brown-skinned Nepali by brushing cosmetics over Akimi's face, neck, hands, feet, and arms as carefully as she would have prepared and handled one of her treasured sculptures. Jasna was willing to do anything to make it possible for Akimi to ease beyond customs and passport inspection with her husband and then out of Japan, even though she really didn't want her best friend and herself to be separated. Jasna had moved beyond her fears and doubts and supported our love and marriage, even though she probably thought we might be reckless. But her calling and informing Mayu had placed me in an even greater race against time and at a serious risk. What Chiasa had planned out and executed so perfectly had now been compromised by Jasna. I knew that even though Jasna and Akimi believed that Mayu was on Akimi's side, we had no true way of knowing if Mayu had also tipped off Nakamura. If she told him, I was certain that even though he was away on his Asian tour, he would send his hired dogs out to descend on the airport or make some influential phone calls to Japanese authorities to intercept and interrupt and to seize his daughter and stop me, perhaps permanently. Once again, Chiasa had been ahead in her thinking and her strategy and 100% on point. Now, Akimi and I were packed into an immaculate cab exiting from a random airport exit on purpose. I had decided we would travel to South Korea by sea. Her father, Nakamura, I believed, would underestimate me 
and never considered that I would use the sea route. Akimi and Jasna did not know that it was an option either. In fact, only Chiasa and I knew. We were both trained to keep our mouths shut and to swallow our secrets until death. And now I knew the difference between a woman who is a man's friend and a woman whom a man loves and a woman who is a man's comrade. A comrade is like-minded, trained in a similar skill, going for the same goal, loyal to the same rules. She is an asset to the mission. A woman whom a man loves is most likely untrained. She is moving with her heart as her leader. She is liable to step directly into a minefield or even to help the opposition by coincidence or by mistake. A woman who is a man's friend is loyal, but not only to one person and not necessarily because she is trained to be loyal or even working toward the same goal. A friend's multiple loyalties could end up sinking the mission and getting everyone, including herself, hurt or captured or killed. On the other hand, a comrade places the mission in the first position. She places the mission before her heart and before her personal needs and wants. She is more loyal to the mission than to any one person or thing. She will even cut her own throat before placing her comrade at risk or before making foolish mistakes consciously or subconsciously. A comrade would never destroy the team's chances of achieving the mission goal. I understood now that a woman who is a friend like Jasna or a woman who is a man's true love like my wife Akimi is untrained and unskilled in this way and without understanding. Neither a friend nor a love could ever be considered my comrade. Yet a female who is well-trained and sharply skilled, who is loyal and thorough, could be considered all three. My comrade, my friend, and my love. Akimi sat with her luggage while wearing my sunglasses as I walked over to the information counter at the station on the pier in Osaka where the ship stopped. The station was stuffed and buzzing with passengers like every place I had gone in Japan. It was extremely clean, well lit, and tightly organized. It was a full-scale operation not a matter of pressing some notes into the palm of a captain of a tiny or mid-sized boat or yacht even. There were customs forms to be completed and embarkment papers. As I glanced the length of the station, I could see the entrance to the security checkpoint that all passengers had to pass through 
to board the ships. A random boarding call announcement made first in Japanese, then in Korean, Chinese, and then in English caught my attention late. Hurrying, I picked up the customer checklist printed in four different languages. Number six on the checklist read, ticket buyers under the age of 20 must have their tickets purchased by an adult parent or guardian. Guardian slash adult must present his or her passport or a valid form of identification. I paused in disbelief and then read it over again. My jaw tightened and my thoughts raced through my options. Me, Akimi, Chiasa, we're all teenagers. Even Jasna, still in Hokkaido, was only 18. Akimi was watching me through the crowds of people rushing through. She seemed to sense that there was some holdup. I picked up a checklist card for her printed in Japanese. I approached the ticket counter to double check. I already knew that the Japanese were tight with their rules and laws, but for me, traveling from America and throughout Japan, I had zero problems purchasing absolutely anything that I could afford. Plane tickets, train tickets, hostel and hotel rooms, the Americans and the Japanese made moves once money changed hands, no matter whose hands it came from. One ticket to Busan, South Korea, I said to the attendant on the English-only line. Passport, please, she said immediately as I presented it, and she slid her hand beneath the curved glass to accept it. She asked, First class, private room, double, single, or group economy? Before I even answered, she said, Oh, sorry, you'll need someone 20 or over to purchase your ticket, sir. I reached in and pulled back my passport. What time does the ship leave? I asked. It leaves from here at 2.45 p.m., she answered. And what time does the next one leave? I asked. There's one. There's one Busan Korea trip a day at 2.45 in the afternoon every day. Can I help you with anything else? She asked, seeming anxious to serve the next person online. Yes. Do you have a price list for the tickets? I asked her. It's on the other side of the information card in your hand, she said with a polite half smile. Thank you, but um, why can't I buy a ticket for myself? I pushed. I'm, I'm a traveling foreign student. My parents are not here traveling with me. Pan Starline is a Korean-owned shipping line. I'd love to sell you a ticket, but these are the rules handed down from the Korean side. She pressed her lips together tightly. Some students bring a signed and notarized letter of permission from their parents. That can work. We can accept that, she said, offering what was a useless alternative for me and especially for Akimi. Good luck, sir. Next, she called out. I stepped to the side thinking, stupid rule. I couldn't purchase the ticket myself, but they would allow me to travel on my own if a parent or guardian or adult purchased it for me. 
Also, I now knew that either the Japanese or the Koreans considered the legal age for adulthood to be 20, not 18, like the Americans. I checked my watch. The only ship of the day cruising to Busan, Korea was leaving shortly. Or we could taxi back to Osaka International Airport and book a flight leaving today without a problem. I wanted to close my eyes and think deeply for a minute. I needed to confer with myself or my father or with the supreme option, Allah, but I couldn't. So I relied on my own instincts. My gut told me the sea route was the right choice. The airline looked and sounded like the easier and faster option, but shit, that's too easy, too open, too available, is sometimes the deadliest shit. Taking one more full glance at the busy station, I saw tens and hundreds of Japanese, many Koreans and Chinese, some Scandinavians and other Europeans, and zero Africans or obviously Muslim persons. I knew that I could approach some adult to buy the tickets on my behalf, yet I didn't trust asking anyone Japanese. I had no way to gauge how they would react or which one of them would grow suspicious of the Nakamura name on my wife's passport, or worse, be familiar with her because they saw her picture in the newspaper for her many art achievements. As it goes in Japan, there were no bums or beggars to whom I could slide a 10,000 yen note in exchange for purchasing our tickets. Matter of fact, everyone was so neatly dressed, quiet and professional in appearance, that I could not detect a single needy person of low status who might cooperate. I handed the information card to Akimi. She read it following behind me as I pushed her luggage out of the station and into the trunk of a cab. I needed to think it through first. I didn't want to highlight my wife or myself. I had almost 24 hours left to solve this ticket-buying problem and to board tomorrow's ship, and I refused to lose. As for now, I would hide my diamond Akimi in a place where I believed Nakamura would not look or would never be able to locate in time. In the back seat of the cab, her eyes questioned me. The driver's eyes were beaming in reverse through his rearview mirror. Hotel? She asked in English. Hi, I agreed, while pulling out my English to Japanese word and phrase dictionary. A very small and quiet hotel around here by the sea, I wanted to say. Small. Chaisai. Quiet hotel. Izukana hotelu. Here. Koko. Si. Kayo. I said. Akimi laughed and said, Hi. She began speaking in Japanese to the driver. They spoke for so long, I got vexed, not knowing what he was asking my wife or saying to her. Looking through the windows and onto the streets instead, I checked out the businesses as the taxi weaved in and out of a series of side streets. It didn't take me long to figure out that Akimi was directing the driver as she searched each block for a suitable place for us to be discreet. 
Akimi does not speak English, but she is not stupid, Jasna had told me firmly in Hokkaido. In fact, she's quite a genius, Jasna added. The area was a tourist haven of all types of eateries and cafes and shops and, of course, bookstores. Everything was labeled in kanji without translation. They had whatever a foreigner could afford, but it was written in the Japanese language so that you would never forget where you are and who's running it. Certain establishments made their presence known by flying their national flags. How else would I have been able to locate the Islamic presence unless I saw the majestic flag of Saudi Arabia, a rich emerald green cloth with the curve and precision of the black inked Arabic letters and the sword accentuating it. I made note I made a note of the block I was on. I couldn't read the kanji street signs, but I would use the all karaoke building on the left and the Toyota dealer on my right as my landmarks. Tomare, Akimi said softly but with enthusiasm. The driver pressed the brakes. Both the door and the trunk opened automatically. It was impossible not to be shocked at the weird side street spot my sweet wife selected. When I hauled in her last piece of luggage, no attendant had appeared to assist us. The lobby was vacant aside from some velvet throwback couches and a long wooden table. I looked for the bell. There was none. Akimi began walking around. When she reached the opposite side of the room, she waved me over. Maonaka isiode she said. I joined her in front of a set of vending machines. We looked in. Behind the glass were the room keys. They were each attached to a number and a knob, and there was also a set of buttons and a slot to feed the machine cash bills and coins. Akimi pressed a kanji-labeled button, and the keys spun from our view. Now there were postcard-sized photos of what I believe were their hotel rooms. Each room had its own strangeness and its own theme. I couldn't read the kanji explanations and options. Akimi stood at my side, reading them and reacting and pointing. One room was filled with stuffed animals that looked like aliens. One room had everything Mickey Mouse. One room was Japanese traditional with no bed but a thin mat and a hard-looking pillow. There were 24 rooms pictured in total. Ten of them were marked sold or in use. Akimi faced me and said in English, Mayonaka choose. I smiled naturally. I knew I had taught her the English word choose and I knew the Japanese translation, Erebete. Akimi choose, I joked. Okay, Akimi choose, she said playfully. Then she pressed a rectangular glass button beneath the picture of a room with sheer black linen curtains, an American style mattress with black sheets, a black desk, a black chair, and a bamboo floor. The pictures disappeared, and the keys to the room Akimi had selected appeared lit up by a thin rectangular neon green light. 5,000 yen, Akimi announced. I pulled out my money stack. 
At the same time, she went into her pocketbook and pulled out her Epi leather wallet. Put it back, I told her. I was sure she understood my tone, if not my words, though instead of putting her wallet back, she pulled out 30,000 yen, which, when converted to American dollars, was less than $300. She flicked it between her fingers as though to show me that's all the money I got. And then she pushed it back into the space in her wallet and pulled out her bank card. She bent it in half to let me know she couldn't use it anymore. Don't worry about it, I said calmly as I searched my mind for the right words in her language. She pulled out her student ID and flashed it just to show me. Then she took out her Pratt College student ID from New York where she had taken the art courses as her prize for winning an art competition. She held her face close to the Pace ID card and tried to duplicate her smile in the photo when she was a bit younger and not in so much trouble before she had married me. I fed the machine five 1,000 yen notes. The room keys dropped down and a ticket was spit out with the room number and time printed on it. Impressed, I grabbed the ticket and the keys. The next vending machine was selling everything a customer might need at a hotel, including condoms. On a business level, I was hooked on the whole vending machine concept, but I didn't buy none of it. At a big time overseas hotel like the Hilton or Hyatt, everything this place was selling separately in its vending machine would have been provided for free. But I was glad we were here in this low-key weird place whose name I did not know. There was no registration card or anyone to check our passports or anything Nakamura could trace. I figured there was actually someone from this little hotel watching the two of us from somewhere. The Japanese were notorious for secrets, hideouts, trapdoors, and sneak attacks, and the art of invisibility. But to whoever was watching, my wife and me, we were simply customers who had already fed the machine and paid the required fee. So they wouldn't have any reason to interfere. The craftsmanship on our second floor door was outstanding. Made from heavy metal, each hotel room had a meter on it with a digital clock. Ours was counting down from five hours from the moment I inserted the key. Once we were inside, the heavy door slammed closed so securely I was certain it was foolproof. There was a much smaller meter on the other side of the door as well. The Japanese had thought of it all and planned it out perfectly. I said to myself, be careful Mayanaka, their culture has prepared them well for the thought battles of life. We removed our shoes. I carried in her luggage. Akimi crawled over the mattress and curled up in the corner, her black hair spreading across the black sheets, her petite green leather jacket creeping up and revealing her belly button, her borrowed Adidas sweats a bit too big. I could see the divide that led to her private places. I removed my backpack, the urn that contained Akimi's mother's ashes. I placed it on the desk as she watched me intently. In the bathroom, I washed my hands and face, removing the soil from the flight and travel. When I stepped back into the room, Akimi was looking through her clothes that were professionally packed and wrapped. 
some tied with ribbons, and others with thick string like each item was brand new. I'll be right back, I told her before the heavy door clicked locked. When I returned from a nearby convenience store, I placed eight bottles of spring water, one lemon, one cup of fresh squeezed orange juice, and two onigiri rice triangles on the desk. I left a new bar of soap, two toothbrushes, and toothpaste. From my backpack, I pulled out Akimi's body oil and a small shampoo. I set everything beside the rice cooker and the tea set. I picked up her passport and said, Akimi, I'm going back out. Dinner at seven. Akimi and my onaka. She opened the bathroom door slightly, one pretty eye watching me through the slight opening. Hi, she said softly. I eased out, looking quickly past her little lavender lace panties and bra laid out on the bed. There were three hours remaining on this day of my Ramadan fast. I remembered in the Sudan, my father and the men on our estate staying in the mosque throughout the entire Ramadan days, separated from their wives and children. I could feel now why men must separate themselves from their women at times to guard their faith and serve their maker. Women are so quietly powerful that their presence can separate a man from his beliefs before he even realizes he has done haram, the forbidden. The clock was winding down on our strange hotel room and on my chances of securing an adult broker to buy our Pan Starline tickets. My mind had been shifting ideas back and forth. I was certain of one thing. There had to be someone out here in this international hub for boats, barges, cargo, and ships who was willing to earn 10 or 20 or 30,000 yen just for showing his identification and purchasing two one-way tickets to Busan. Outside the spot where the Saudi Arabian flag flew high, I sensed that my idea was a long shot. Up close, I could now see clearly that it was a carpet store called Jeddah Carpets. This was not just any collection of carpets. They were from Saudi Arabia, which ranks among the top three carpet makers in the world. I'm sure business was bringing them bundles. My offer of what amounted to be about two or three hundred dollars from the ticket buying errand would be considered minimal or nothing at all. Determined not to defeat my plan with with doubt, I went inside the place anyway. Assalamu alaikum Ramadan Karim. I greeted the elderly Arab man in Arabic and reminded him of our mutual sacred holiday at the same time. Alaikum salam ala hafiz. How can we accommodate you? He asked. Our samples have been displayed for your comfort, he added before taking a breath. I'm not here to order your fine carpets. I saw your flag and thought you might have information about the closest masjid in this area. Alhamdulillah, you're trying to locate a mosque in Osaka, the man said and then smiled doubtfully. It is easier to find a fish in the desert, he laughed, two short grunts. But the mosque is in the heart. Is it not? he asked me. 
Suddenly, a younger Saudi man, about 40 years old or so, came bursting through the back curtain. What is it? he asked. We are not hiring. I am not looking for work, I stated. I have a business of my own. Well, then you are here for buying carpet? He smiled and opened his hands, a gesture to welcome a potential customer. He is looking for a mosque, the elder man said. What for? the younger one asked. For today's Maghrib prayer, I responded, tolerating him. We are not fasting. My father has diabetes and I am traveling, the younger one said. I am also traveling, I showed him his excuse as we both foreigners living comfortably, it seemed, and definitely not traveling through a hot desert on a camel's back like men were in the old days of Muhammad, peace be upon him. So, are you better than us? he asked with his face reddening and tightening some. Salam, I said and turned to leave. It was a brief exchange, but I was clear from the vibe that I wasn't going to get anything moving from either of these two. I was not disappointed, just determined. I already knew that just because a man is an Arab does not mean that he is a Muslim. And just because he says he's Muslim does not mean that he's true. Surah 2 Ayat 184, the elder Arab man said as he stepped outside his carpet business and onto the sidewalk where I stood. He was quoting from chapter 2 of the Holy Quran, the 184th line, I knew it well. It commanded all Muslims to observe the Ramadan fast except if they were sick or traveling. It also said that Muslims who could not fast because of travel or illness should make up the fasting days before the beginning of the next Ramadan fast, or if a believer could not fast due to illness, he should feed one Muslim a charitable meal each day of Ramadan instead. He then handed me a flyer written in Arabic. I read it. It advertised a free meal to Muslims fasting during Ramadan at sunset each day and posted the location sponsored by Jeddah Carpets, it read. We have set this table at a nice halal restaurant as a form of zakat since my son and I are unable to fast during Ramadan. This is what is required from us as believers. Surah 2, Ayat 264, I responded. From the change in his facial expression, I could tell that he understood. I'm not searching for charity. I was looking for like-minded men from our faith. But thank you. I left with a distaste for men who try and pay their way out of Ramadan. In a phone booth, I used my phone card and called Haki, the Kenyan college student who lived in the Harajuku hostel where I once stayed. His hospitality was the opposite feeling of the father and son of Jeddah Carpets. His face had not popped up into my thoughts when I reviewed the short list of adults I knew here in Japan. However, it did when I was in the carpet store. Haki had said to me a few times, If you need anything at all, just ask me. Habarigani. Haki picked up my call. Salam, I said. It's my Anaka 
who stayed there at the hostel a few weeks ago. There was a pause. Oh, yes, brother. How is it? You are still here in Japan, yes. I'm still here, I said, and he interrupted. I mentioned to you once before that it's a difficult place to leave. What can I do for you? Haki, listen carefully. I got a situation, I said. As the Englishman says, I am all ears. Strange saying, isn't it? He joked. I'm in Osaka right now. I don't know who you might know out here, but I need to buy a ticket to board the ferry boat from Osaka to Busan, Korea, I explained. The loan department is the only department I cannot help you with, my brother. Remember, college students have all had our accounts em- emptied out by our universities. Hockey, I can help you with that. I have money. I can pay out 30,000 yen over the cost of the tickets to the person who buys the tickets for me. They won't sell them to me directly because I'm underage. Is there something that the Japanese will not sell, he asked, sounding seriously surprised. It's not the Japanese. It's a Korean-owned cruise line. Hmm. I know at least three students in Osaka. I'll have to try and reach them. It's exam time for me. Man, I wish I was there. Even I could use the 30,000 yen. When do you plan to travel? Tomorrow afternoon. The payment is for the person who can put a rush on it. Show up with his passport or any official form of identification. He has to be 20 years or older. 20 or over, he repeated. Isn't it strange, the clash of culture? What? I didn't know what he was talking about. Back home in Kenya, a boy becomes a man at age 14. At 14, I am no longer allowed to remain in a house under the same roof with my own mother. My father would forbid it. My people would look down on it. At 14, my older brother, who already had his own horse and me, built a house for me on the property that my parents own. My father gave me a plot of land there. I could have married at that instant and taken my new bride into the house that I built. As you can see, I didn't. I opted to focus on my studies, but it was my choice as a man. Word up, a big difference, I acknowledged. At that moment, I appreciated hockey's like-mindedness. When I first arrived in Japan, Everything was crazy for me. It took some getting used to. Japanese men were still dressing in short pants. Short pants, I repeated. In my country, only young boys wear short pants outside or as a school uniform. Once you are a man, you wear proper pants and shirts, isn't it? Yet the Japanese have what they refer to as teenagers. What is that? Neither child nor man, I suppose. Yet, they're still dressed as little boys. The Japanese men at 20, 30, 40 are still reading comic books and playing with their toys 
and ignoring their women. One Japanese fella I know, a grad student, was always talking about his girlfriend. As it turns out, she was some popular animated character who he fell in love with somehow, but he stupidly believed they were in a real life relationship. Haki, thanks for taking my call, but I'm running low on time, I said with an even tone. Do you think you can arrange this for me? I pressed. I'm going to make three calls. Call me back in one hour just in case I got to track them down. All right, thanks, I told him. But he was still talking as I was in motion to hang up. I pulled the phone back to my ear. Speaking of women, is it one ticket or two tickets that you need? First you said ticket, then you said tickets. Which is it? Haki asked. It's two tickets, I confirmed. I see. I have been meaning to ask you. I hope that it is okay to ask. He spoke hesitantly for some reason. What? I pushed him to get right to it. There was a beautiful African girl I saw you with. She was African and Japanese. Forgive me if she is your woman, but if she is not, how about arranging an introduction for me? She seems like the best of both worlds. It's been lonely here for me. I mean the rigorous studies and the differences in culture and beliefs and things. But uh, I'm not looking for a bar girl. You know that I know exactly where to find them. I'm looking for a good girl, a wife. Is she yours? She is my woman, I told him and hung up. I felt confident about Aki's ability to complete the ticket transaction. If he was smart, he would locate a broker and offer him 15,000 or 20,000 yen and keep the rest as a finder's fee. He had led me to find halal foods and Billy's and the Senegalese. I should have thought of him before I even considered the Saudi Arabians. Many of them are known for their riches and sometimes for their arrogance. Better yet, I should have searched out the neediest, most genuine Muslim man. That way I would be performing zakat to help him while helping myself as well. I wouldn't use the zakat as an excuse either. I would do it in addition to maintaining the fast, which is required of all able Muslims. Then that thought triggered a new idea. I pulled the flyer from my pocket and opened it a second time. I jumped in a cab and headed over to the free meal sponsored by Jeddah Carpets. I scolded myself for the whole ride. Allah had placed the answer directly into the palm of my hands, but I had allowed the messenger to distract me from the gift of the message. Of course there would be at least one willing Muslim adult at the Maghrib prayer and the free meal for breaking our fast who could also use the extra pocket money. In the back room of a Lebanese restaurant, situated side by side with a Saudi hookah bar, 12 men, including myself, plus five women who stood behind us, made the Maghrib prayer. The small room was much warmer than the air outside. The thick and plush carpet was welcoming to both our bended knees and our lowered foreheads. When our prayers were completed, some moved through the curtain and into the empty restaurant where a long table was set and marked with a placard 
that read in Arabic, courtesy of Jetta, Jetta Carpets. Still, in the back with six other Muslim men who remained there also, I peered into faces, but discreetly. There were African Muslims in the mix, I could tell, but none of them black-skinned like me. I was looking not for a common race, but for a common faith and mindset. I knew a Muslim, a true believer, would support and respect a young marriage like mine. It would not pour into their ears as poison. It would be familiar and for many expected. It was for these reasons that I sought out a Muslim in particular. I chose a brother named Ali. He was young but older than me, I could tell. He was wearing an Osaka University t-shirt and jeans. More important, he had arrived accompanying a visibly pregnant wife, which I believed might work in my favor. May I talk with you for a moment, I asked him. He nodded and stopped and stepped out of the circle of men he was quietly conversing with. I am a student traveling with my young wife. We are trying to purchase tickets here at the pier for the ferry to South Korea. They tell me that I need someone 20 years or older to purchase the tickets for me. Someone who has a valid passport or official identification. I need to travel tomorrow. If you are willing, I can pay 30,000 yen for you to be the broker to buy the tickets on my behalf. He stood staring at me, a powerful stare without blinking. Which university do you attend, he asked me. I'm a high school student, I said. He stood silently for a few seconds and then hummed. Hmm. A married high school student? Yes, I responded. Alhamdulillah, I added. Where are you coming from, he asked. Africa, I said, purposely vague. A huge place, he commented, letting me know he was too smart for this kind of broad response. I have an American passport. My wife has a Japanese passport, I added, still dodging my origin. Oh, so there is the trouble, he said knowingly. Her father and family have forbidden your union, he asked. Her father gave written permission for our union before our marriage and tried to withdraw it after our, our ajid was completed and our marriage was performed and consummated, I said. I had a feeling that this information, which I would normally have concealed, would move Ali into my corner. La Qadara la, Ali said quietly, meaning God forbid. Now you're running away? I am taking my wife to visit with her grandmother, I said, and then added swiftly. The ticket office will close today in one hour. It will reopen at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, I pressed. As he paused for more than 60 seconds of thought, his wife gently pushed the curtain to the, to the side looking for him. She looked into his eyes and he into hers. She was holding a small plate with two dates and a few slices of fruit. He put his hand up to signal her to remain where she was. When she released the curtain, he asked me to wait. And now I stood alone, as only three other men remained. 
still talking among themselves. After five minutes, I walked into the restaurant area not knowing if he had secretly diverted. He was there, seated with his wife, who wore a hijab and long shirt properly concealing her neck and arms and breasts and hips over her loose-fitting jeans. She looked my way with judging eyes. Soon, they both stood up. Ali walked over. My wife said that you are good. Somehow she feels certain, but she is a woman, so I must have some confirmation. How do I know that you are not a criminal? Maybe you have killed someone. If we all did our jobs as Muslims, everything would go as it should, I assured him. Meaning, he questioned, I am a Muslim man following my deen. I am married and securing my wife. You are a Muslim man, a husband, a student, right? Allah is the best knower of all things, and Allah will hand out the punishment and the rewards, not you or me, right? I told him. So, Allah will do his work, and the police will do theirs, and you and I. He turned away from me and he and his wife shifted from the Arabic language that we had been speaking into Persian, which I did not speak. Silently, I waited. Show me your passport. And where is your wife, he asked, turning back to me. As I pulled out my passport and Akimi's, I said, you will have to present these passports to purchase our tickets. He looked at them quickly. I also have our marriage documents on me, I offered. His wife smiled approvingly. Five minutes before the ticket window closed, Ali purchased a ticket for me. His wife, Samira, purchased a ticket for Akimi. They were Shia Muslims, originally from Iran, Iran. Both of them were graduate students at Osaka University. Ali was in engineering and Samira was studying medicine. Samira was captivated by my love story. She was also curious about the Japanese girl as she seemed to have formed an opinion about them as a group. Is she Muslim, she asked. Soon, inshallah, I answered, but not yet. She is reading and learning from our holy Quran. She is willing. Akimi thinks Islam is beautiful, I added, truthfully. Alhamdulillah, Samira added, excited. Will you both continue your studies? I see that your love hasn't stopped the two of you from your studies, I smiled. Then they both smiled. Just when I thought I had satisfied her curiosity, she asked me more questions. Does your wife speak Arabic? Why Korea? She asked questions one after the other, softly and politely as Muslim women tend to do. Ali did not seem to mind her questioning me or my responding, so I fed her a few harmless general facts about myself. I kept rephrasing the same information in different ways, but thought it was important to keep her smiling and calm. It was clear that Ali trusted her, not me. Akimi doesn't speak Arabic? And she doesn't speak English either? And you don't speak Japanese? Iwala, she exclaimed. So the two of you 
are communicating through your eyes, your thoughts, and your gestures. How beautiful, Samira said softly. Praise Allah. He has given both of you something special. And our hearts, I said. We are communicating through our hearts. And those were my last words before they each purchased our tickets. Afterward, I paid Ali the 30,000 yen. He embraced me. There is an Islamic center in South Korea. Be sure and visit there in Itaewon. It's a section of Seoul. There are many halal places and a mosque as well. There are good Muslims there. Not many, but enough for a community. Thanks. Good looking out, I told him. And you are right. Allah is the best knower of all things, he said. And then we parted ways. A well-suited elderly Japanese man whose breath filled the entrance to my hotel with the stale of alcohol was being held up by a young Japanese female teen. She wasn't robbing him. She was simply keeping him from stumbling while drunk. I moved past them before noticing my wife standing in front of the vending machine across the lobby. I walked up behind her and pressed my body against her back. She was wearing a sleeveless dress. She looked up and over her shoulder at me with her mischievous smile. What are you doing now? I asked her. She placed her finger on the glass, pointing out some kanji letters. Softly she said, 5,000 yen. She didn't reach for her purse and I liked that she didn't make the same mistake twice. I fed the machine the money and walked behind her up the stairs, enjoying the way the expensive, black silk dress danced on her subtle curves. I was loving her pretty toes, the nails freshly painted black, and her bare legs in her expensive high heels. She could seduce me, but when we reached upstairs, I would have her change her clothes. From here on in, she would not seduce any other man, which I believe women do when they are uncovered outside of home. As my wife, she would conceal her magnetism, and she had so much of it. The hotel room door meter was just about to eat up the last two minutes of our payment. I pushed in the new key, and it reset until the following morning. The scent of nail polish rushed up my nose when the door closed behind us. We both took our shoes off. Akimi's clothes were in neat, high stacks piled up in the corner, I had to smile as I glanced around the room, finally relaxed enough to really notice every detail. The sheer black curtains revealing the blackened sky and the clean black sheets pulled taut across the mattress. My wife had beautiful black eye-lined eyes and wore an exquisite black silk dress and her petite feet and pretty black toenails were alluring against the tan bamboo floor. She is art, I thought to myself, as I saw how she blended and decorated herself and everything that surrounded her. I noticed the one missing bottle of water 
and the uneaten onigiris right beside them and on the desk lay several crisp brand new 10,000 yen notes which were perfectly spaced and arranged like a circular Asian fan. I stepped over. With my eyes I counted. There were 35 10,000 yen notes close to 3,500 US. I didn't say a word just turned and looked at my wife who was leaning up against the wall looking back at me. We stared. Come close I said to her She walked over slowly and came up very close. She looked up into my eyes. I hugged her. Where did you get all that money? I asked, feeling her soft hair against my face. As I looked over and passed her, I realized that I did not see her trunk or suitcase. The LV cruiser bag was there though. I dropped my arms, put my hands on each side of her waist, I pushed her back a step gently. What did you do, I asked her. She pulled my study cards out from my pocket and flipped through them quickly. Then she eased my Japanese English dictionary out of my pocket. She sat down on the floor in one of her yoga style sitting ways, her mini dress unable to cover her pretty bare legs. She arranged a few of my study cards on the floor with the Japanese side flipped up. I couldn't read that side, so when she finished, I squatted down and turned them over. A Kimi suitcase cell were the words she'd combined. I looked at her. She pulled up each card and placed down a new sentence. I flipped them. Japan, a Kimi country. I smiled. Picking up the cards, I asked her, where sold? I placed two word cards down so she would understand. She answered, go, but she always said when she meant come. I knew she was offering to take me to whatever location or person she had sold her luggage to. Chato mate, I told her in Japanese, asking her to wait. Hi, she said softly, watching me stand up. I held out my hand to her. She placed her hand in mine and I pulled her up to her feet. This dress, I said, it's for my onaka. I touched the cloth of her dress and gently pulled it some. I took everything out of my pockets and laid it out on the desk. This face, I touched her skin, is from my onaka. I squeezed her lips until they puckered. These lips are for my onaka. Gently, I kissed her. She exhaled. Her lips parted and our warm tongues welcomed each other, our kissing and licking and sucking expressing our deepest emotions. Soon I ran my hands down the length of her body until I was squatted with my hands wrapped around each of her ankles. I loosened my grip and stroked her feet with my fingers, then moved my touch over her ankles, then calves, and brushed her knees and pulled up into the inside of her thighs. These legs are only for my onaka. My fingertips could now feel the moisture spreading and soaking the lace of her petite panties. Her eyes turned into pools of boiling oil and her breathing picked up and our hearts raced. I removed the soft silk dress with the costume jewelry that flooded her neckline and ran down her back. 
When I touched her lightly with my tongue, she bit her lip and stepped up and walked backward onto the mattress. She walked backward until she hit the wall. Then she eased her body down to a sitting position. She held her legs with her hands and laid her chin on top of her knees, watching intensely and waiting. I came out of my clothes and she studied me. I took two steps and picked up the oil elixir. I sat on the bed facing her. I began massaging the oil into her body, beginning with her pretty toes. She eased one hand down and began stroking me with a light touch, creating an urge that was multiplying rapidly. The scent of Sudanese oils perfumed the air. We rocked slowly at first, in a rhythm that was as natural as the soaring movement of the wings of the white-tailed eagle I saw in the fields of Hokkaido. My mind left, and only feelings and sensations remained. She fell against me, holding me as tight as she could. I eased back against the sheets. Her body was pressed against me, sealed by her syrup. I saw scenes of myself climbing the Hidaka to find her, and suddenly my emotions shifted from longing and desire and pure pleasure to insult and anger that we had ever been separated. I began sucking her neck and passion marking her body. I remembered that she was my wife, the mother to my twins, and I spilled all my seeds and swinging emotions inside her until my body weight crushed her. I rolled to my side, both of us breathing like we had climbed 1,000 stairs. Her face was flushed and her eyes filled with tears. Then a smile eased across her lips and she said, Aishiro. I grabbed her up and we remained in an embrace. My feelings were still furious. I fucking love you, girl. I fucking love you like crazy. You belong to me and I belong to you. I knew she didn't know what I said, but I knew she understood. At 9.15 p.m., a new hunger aroused me. I showered and put on fresh wares. As I looked through Akimi's clothes, I called out her name. Peko pekora, I told her in Japanese, meaning I'm hungry. She smiled and stretched her limbs like a cat. Her movements were slow as though she had only needed to satisfy one hunger. Come on. I rushed her as I laid out what I wanted her to wear. She saw there was no resistance in her. She showered. When she emerged in her yukata, a beautiful, long, colorful Japanese dress with amazing sleeves, a kind of summer kimono, I was moved in a real big way by how incredible she looked. Now she was covered, arms, legs, shoulders, hips, thighs, and calves but she seemed even more seductive to me. She went through her LV cruiser bag and pulled out some Japanese socks with slots to divide her toes. She slid into a pair of wooden shoes with the socks on. She took small steps toward me. I slip knotted her hair. When she glanced down at the desk, I lifted the passports and Pan Star ship tickets and said, Ashita, Busan, Korea, letting her know we would travel tomorrow. 
She smiled brightly and clapped her hands together twice. She swept up the 350,000 yen with her fingertips and then embraced me. I felt her ease the folded stack of bills into my back pocket. She kept holding on to me as though she never wanted to let go. Akimi, should I eat you for dinner? I asked her. She released her hands and smiled a smile that made me wonder if she understood what I had just said. I grabbed her hand and said, come on, no more for you. Chatomate, she said softly. She walked over to her handbag and opened it. She pulled out a small box and lifted the top. She began speaking in Japanese to me while walking my way with something concealed inside her small hand. As I leaned against the wall, she touched my hand and placed a band of gold on my married finger. She scolded me. I imagined she was asking, where is your wedding ring? Have you lost it or is it off for some other reason? But I couldn't be sure. Besides, I didn't mind the way she went about loving and claiming me. I checked out the ring. It was engraved in kanji. When I kissed her on her cheek and acknowledged, Arigato gozaimasu, she smiled. And where are your bangles, I asked her. She looked puzzled. I gestured, holding her wrist in my hand. She rushed back to her bag and dived in and placed the two diamond bracelets that I gifted her for our wedding over her fingers. I grabbed my Jansport and pulled the two gold bangles out that she had given to her friend to attract my attention. I slid them over her fingers and onto her wrist. We good now, I asked her. She leaned against my body. The silk of her yukata aroused me, but I told myself to move. A man gotta eat, and if I gave in to her seduction every time it moved me, I would be living inside and between her thighs, unable to do anything else. Purposely, I avoided returning to the Lebanese restaurant where I had made prayer and broken my fast with a cup of water and two dates. My curious wife and I strolled down the side streets of Osaka, her dressed in her beautiful yukata, no head covering yet concealed behind an exotic umbrella in the cloudless, rainless night. I enjoyed the silence, this time because of our mutual mood. We were in a kind of war, but we were at peace. Easily, as we walked by, my wife pointed out her red epi-leather LV trunk and suitcase. They were positioned front and center in the window in a now closed and darkened shop that featured used, expensive designer goods. From the tiniest purses to the heaviest handbags and even luggage, she didn't have to show me. I trusted her, but it was good that she did. I needed my wife and me to become closer and even tighter than we were so far. This was the only real way for us to protect our marriage. She had to really know me, my thoughts and all. She had to follow what I told her to do without even a slight change here and there. She had to get in a perfect rhythm with me. If she couldn't, I knew that any outsider could exploit the weakness and attack our love. Cooks from Kashmir prepared our extra spicy meal. 
it was a small dinner place that gave off the feeling that we were eating in a good friend's brick oven kitchen. There were four other female customers who were also wrapped up in their traditional clothing and eating alongside their husbands. Kashmir is an Islamic country also. The restaurant owner had a unique style of wallpaper plastered across one wall of his intimate setting. It was actual photography of revealing scenes of the beautiful mountain lands of Kashmir. As Akimi and I observed it, the waiter said to me, you are looking at a piece of heaven, my country. The dark-skinned Kashmiri waiter, while pouring water into my wife's glass, also became distracted as he glanced at my pretty wife. Apparently, he was looking at a piece of heaven also. Even with her body well covered, she needed her long, dark hair wrapped. I knew that. I told myself, one step at a time, inshallah. In between dinner and dessert, I slid Akimi the green study cards with the kanji explanation of Ramadan so that she would understand why I would only be sharing meals with her after sunset each evening. She laid each card out and read it, following the kanji with her pretty painted black fingernails. She looked up at me. Hi, wakarimashita, she said, meaning that she understood. The waiter brought over some honey-laced fruits. Who? Akimi said in English. What? I asked her. She pointed to the kanji card on the cards. Who? She repeated and held out her hand. I gave her the other cards, knowing she wanted to ask me something. Who Japanese write? She, she spelled out with my study cards. Swakesha, I told her in Japanese, meaning translator. Woman? She asked. Hi, I told her. Chiasa. Chiasa, she repeated softly. On the way back to our hotel, I copped a duffel bag at a uniform store. Japan was so big on hard work that workers' clothes and accessories could be purchased at all hours of the, of the night. Akimi wanted the pink duffel, but I knew that I would be, be the one carrying it, of course, so I chose brown. Seated on the floor, Back at our hotel room late night, both Akimi and I listened to some music on her antique, handheld, battery-operated radio. We sat it on the corner as we read the books that we had purchased from an impressive bookstore that took up an entire building and was packed with books from all around the world and plenty of curious customers, night readers. She was reading a book on pregnancy and childbirth. I was reading a travel guide about Korea. It seemed like she liked my study cards. She positioned her version of an English sentence on the bamboo floor using them. Two boy, two girl were the words on the cards she laid down. I smiled. She was asking about our twins and Shala. I answered with the cards, son good, daughter good also. She laid down her promise. Akimi Mayanaka, one daughter, one son. Around midnight, she and I were stuffed inside a phone booth together. She leaned her body against mine as I followed up with Haki and let him know I had secured the tickets. He wished me a safe trip, apologized for earlier, and then said, I am here, 
until I achieve my PhD. So remember, brother, you have a friend in Japan. Chiasa, are you good? I asked Chiasa when she picked up. So good. You called, she said with a soft-spoken excitement. I told you I would. I know, she said even softer. Is everything okay with you and your grandfather? Perfect. What did he say? He asked me how was ninja camp, she said. I had told him that I would visit my sensei in Osaka. That's why I left Kyoto that afternoon. I had to make sure I did it since I told my grandfather that I would. I want you to introduce yourself to my wife. Say anything that you would like to say. Anything, she repeated. Anything, I assured her and handed Ikimi the phone. Uma answered, the phone excited. Say salam alaikum, I pronounced the Arabic greeting for my wife slowly as I held the phone to her ear. Salam alaikum, she said softly. Akimi, Uma love, she added with great joy, holding my wife from behind while talking to my Umi on the phone was a simple but high moment for me. I am most at ease when I am pleasing the women I love. If I have come up short or disappointed or failed them, I say nothing. I just keep on pushing and working and fighting until I get it right and a smile spreads across their faces on the way across their faces the way I was certain it was on Uma's pretty face and the way it was on my wife's pretty face right then.